This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Be seated. Well, good morning again. And we are in a sermon series, as I mentioned, on the five solas. And if you haven't been with us, we've talked about the fact that although the Protestant Reformation, which this year is the 500th anniversary, produced many traditions, one thing that it also produced that was common to all traditions that have come out of the Protestant Reformation and stayed true to it, are these five doctrines, or really five principles. Five ways to read the scriptures theologically, you could say. And those are called the five solas. And we started with scripture alone, and we said that scripture isn't the only authority God gives us, but it is our highest authority. Last week, we talked about faith alone, that the question of faith alone is, how do Jesus's merit, that is to say, his perfect life and his perfect death, how does that get applied to us? And the answer was faith alone. And we said, faith is the gift of God to look away from yourself to Jesus, which does not come natural to us. But faith is a gift to look away from ourselves. And when we look upon Jesus, who's the object of our faith, God, we'll talk about this today, graciously counts us as righteous because of Jesus. So we talked about scripture and then faith, and this morning is sola gratia, or grace alone. Now, when we think about grace, you can think about merit on the other side. And one way to talk about merit or perceived earning and merit could be the word entitled or entitlement. Now, I am a millennial, and when you talk about millennials and entitlement, most people would be inclined to say, because of things they've read, millennials are the most entitled generation. Now, I'm not here to say if that's true or it's not true, but I do want to mention that no matter what generation you're in, we all struggle with entitlement. All of us struggle with entitlement. There was a periodical, a psychology periodical in 2013 that listed seven different types of entitlement. Now, I'm not going to read all seven, but I want to hit on just four of the seven. Entitlement is defined 
as the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment that others are not. So here's one type. This is the type that we tend to think about. You expect the same rules that apply to others shouldn't apply to you. For example, other people might need to start at the bottom and work their way up, but you shouldn't have to. That's entitlement. Another example or type would be you feel massively put upon when other people ask you for small favors, but expect that when you ask people for favors, it's no big effort. Right? That is a form of entitlement. I'm different than other people. The third type could be you expect other people to be more interested in you and what's on your agenda than you are interested in them and what's on their agenda. You see your own interests as more interesting than other people's and see your goals and dreams as more valid or important than other people's. That's a form of entitlement. Lastly, you disregard rules that are intended for everyone's comfort. For example, you ignore the signs to please not put your feet on the chairs at the movie theater because after all, your feet aren't that dirty and not to text during a movie, right? Because somehow if people understood that your kids were home with a babysitter, they would be fine with you breaking the rule. But as soon as they do it, don't they know we're in a movie? So entitlement can rear its head in, in many ways. But it's, we're swimming in it. We're swimming in this idea of entitlement. The church is to be a contrast community always. And when it comes to how the church is to be a contrast community in a world of entitlement... The church is to be a community of thankfulness. So we'd have to ask ourselves the question, how can the church be a community of thankfulness in contrast to a world of entitlement? How is that possible? I believe the reformers, and even now today, would answer the only way the church can be a community of contrast between a world of entitlement. Or to say it another way, the way a church can be a community of thankfulness in a world of entitlement is to embrace and understand the doctrine of grace alone. That's the only way that we can actually be a contrast of a community of thankfulness in this world of entitlement. And like the other sermons in this series, I'm gonna break this sermon into two movements. The first movement is professing grace alone, and then we'll talk about how do we practice it. So first, how would we rightly profess or describe or confess sola gratia? Well, the first thing we'd have to say is that grace is a gift. We said this last week that faith was a gift, and we get it from the same verse. So if you look at your worship folder here in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. This word it, what is it referring to? Right, so you gotta look back at the antecedent because everything's gotta match up. And you wonder, is it faith or is it grace? And the answer is both. The word it is referring to grace and faith. Both are a gift of God. Now while faith may have needed more explaining as to why or how that's a gift, Grace usually comes more natural to think about as a gift because the way we talk about grace is that grace is what? Unmerited favor. So we think, of course, if it's unmerited, then it has to be a gift. And so grace is a gift. We are saved 
by grace through faith. So we have to start off by saying grace is a gift, no matter how obvious it may seem. So to rightly profess grace, we have to say we did nothing to deserve it. We were not entitled at all to God's mercy. God didn't look at us in any way and think, wow, they're special. Or these over here, they deserve my grace. These over here, not so much. No, it's all mercy. It's all gift. If it's grace, it's gift. So that's the first place we have to start. Next, grace is God's power to transform sinners. Let's look at this text and let's start at the beginning. Paul paints quite a bleak picture. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay, let's just start there. You were dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. What is this? This sounds very uh, highfalutin, doesn't it? The prince of the power of the air. What is that? What is the power of the air? Well, think about air. Okay, air is all around you. It's, it's, you're always breathing it. You can't get away from air. A-I-R, air. And so the, the power of the evil one in this present age, Paul says, is like air. It's all around us. It can pollute anything. And we can be taken up into the service of the evil one wherever we are in life, always. And Paul says that's actually what you were. You were a lackey to the evil one everywhere you went. He says the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, you could say still at work, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the picture is bleak. If you're in the church, there is nothing special about you except that God came to you by grace. And that's what he says in verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he breaks the sentence. He does this in Greek and he does it in English. He does, doesn't even make that much sense because later on in verse eight, he says the exact same thing. But for emphasis, he breaks the sentence here and he says, don't miss this. This is grace. That's effectively what he's saying. It's, it's marked off by dashes in our English Bible. So he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Could be a parenthesis. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So grace is not only a gift, but it's, it is power. And it's the type of power that transforms sinners. Now in our day and age, most of the time, we think our main problem is ignorance. Right? We just don't know the right things, or we don't know the right people, or we don't know enough of the right things. Now ignorance matters, and we'll see in just a moment that grace does overcome ignorance. But ignorance is not our main issue. Let's look here at Ephesians chapter four, verse 17 and 18. It's, it's not in here, uh, so I'll just read it. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They, were, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So ignorance is there, and grace has to overcome ignorance. So there's darkness of minds, things are dim, and there's ignorance. But it doesn't stop there. It actually goes deeper. 
So, darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's actually the bottom. Our main issue is not ignorance. Our main issue is hardness of heart. And it's not just hardness of heart like I'm having a bad day, I'm having a bad week, I'm having a bad life, and so uh, my heart is kind of hard towards something or someone. Hardness in this case is dead, absolutely dead. Like you remove a heart from a body, let it sit for three days. No matter how much you massage it, the hardness doesn't go away because it's dead. So to change the metaphor from a heart, a beating heart, to uh, another sense, uh, hearing, okay? Uh, when, I, when I read this, for some reason, my mind always goes to a friend of mine who had a daughter who was born completely deaf. And he says this, and he's not even being harsh. He says, she was deaf as a rock, is what he says. That's what he says about his own daughter. I'm, I'm not sure if that's okay or not, but he says it, so uh, I get, maybe it's okay. So he says she's deaf as a rock. Now, she has a cochlear implant, praise God, so she can hear. But at night, especially, especially as a child, she'd turn it off at night. And there was, she slept in the same room with her brother, both elementary age. In their room, their beds were on either side of the room, and there was a space in between. Their room was on the front of the house and right beside their porch. And one Sunday morning years ago, early before church, there were, was a car with two drunk people in it. They lost control of the vehicle, and they came, jumped the curb into their yard, smashed through the house into, the, into their children's room in the front of the house. And there was enough space in between the two beds for the car to fit in. Now, they both were fine. And no one was hurt, actually, except the house. But no person was hurt. So my friend runs in the room, opens the door, and he recalls what he sees. He sees his son screaming and crying. And he looks at his daughter, and she's kind of groggy, and looks around and has this dumbfounded look on her face as there's dust in the air because there's a car in her house. Why? Because she didn't hear anything. That's why. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? I think it's hard for us to imagine that. People who have always heard or have always been able to see, you can't imagine what it's like to, to have that sense gone, dead to you. But when you're deaf, you can't hear a car crashing through your house. You see, this hardness or deadness of heart is like that. Doesn't matter how loud you scream, doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter how long you massage that heart, unless life is breathed into it, it does not beat. So grace does that. It's a gift that transforms because that's our deepest need. And this is not just a New Testament thing. We read this earlier, Exodus 34. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I'm reading the wrong verse. Okay, uh, that's actually today's passage. Uh, I'll skip the other ones. So, if grace is the power to transform, like that cochlear implant turns on that little girl's ears, or takes a dead heart and makes it beat again, if grace can do that, grace then also refers to the cleansing, regenerating, and transforming work of God in the lives of believers. So grace is unmerited favor, but it's unmerited favor that finds practical expression as it changes believers into what God would have us be. You see, it's not just God's grace that makes you alive and then it's up to you. If you're gonna become more holy, you need more grace than ever. 
We're gonna talk more about that in a second. So grace is God's gift. Grace is God's power to transform sinners. And then grace is God's disposition towards sinners. Now, I think this might be one of the most, maybe not challenging, but most overlooked aspects of grace in the Bible. Because grace, we might say, is a response or an application of God's character to human rebellion. You see, if you imagine, before sin, God wasn't gracious in the type of way he's gracious now. Grace is a response to rebellion. Okay, before there was rebellion, God didn't exercise grace. But somehow, what we see in God's exercising of grace is we see that what does God's loving character look like in the face of human rebellion? And the answer is mercy. The answer is grace. Grace is not sentimentalism. Sometimes we talk about it that way. Just like we make love a very sentimental word we talked about last week, grace is not sentimental. Grace is actually expensive. Grace is a response to sin. As one commentator says, sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. We tend to think of sin more like a bungee cord and less like gravity. And this is what I mean. We tend to treat sin as though there's a bungee cord attached to us and for fun, we can just step off the side, but it's okay because we'll come right back. But actually, in the Bible, sin is described as gravity. You think it's safe, it's not safe. You think it's no big deal, it's a big deal. And so when you, when we, when I choose to sin and we have this idea that, eh, just be a second, little pet sin over here, it's fine. I'll come right back, me and God will be cool, it's not hurting anybody. The Bible does not describe sin that way. The Bible does not describe sin as a bungee cord. It describes it as gravity. And the only way you don't splat is because God is kind to you and God loves you and he's gracious to you. So sin is violent. Sin is rebellion. But grace or but God. Grace is God's then violent, raw, and bloody response to sin. You see, grace is not sentimental. It's expensive. It cost the father his son. It cost the son his life. So we might say grace is a response or an application of God's character and attributes to human rebellion. Quoting, grace is that aspect of divine action by which God blesses his rebellious creatures, whether through preservation, common grace, or salvation, special grace. It characterizes the manner in which he deals with those who through their rejection of him as their creator and sovereign deserve nothing from him and yet whom he still chooses to bless. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's grace. That's God's disposition. But you gotta keep reading Right after that in the verse, it says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. How does that go together? It's because grace is not sentimental. Grace is costly. Grace is unmerited and it's costly. Who paid for the guilt of those who would believe in Jesus? Jesus. So it costs you and me nothing. It costs Jesus everything. So you see, grace 
is God's kind disposition in the face of our rebellion that cost him his son. So in the face of rebellion and human injustice then, God can choose grace and mercy over exacting justice from his people. And I would say this. This week, I have seen friends of mine, especially people of color, exercise mercy and grace in a way that I do not know how. No matter where you fall out on the the verdict that came out this week, know this, I don't care, and I don't think any of us should care, about how great of a man Philando Castile was or what his accomplishments were. The fact that he was a human being and was shot matters. He should not be dead, no matter where he went to school or what color his skin was. And why I'm saying this is because what I've seen my friends in that community, how I've seen them respond, has been a response of mercy and grace, has been a desire to see that justice ultimately is found in Jesus. Ultimately, that's where we will see justice. And yet, of course, we should hope for proximate justice now. And that is not at all to demonize the officer. That's not the point. But it is to say that all of our hearts should long to learn from other brothers and sisters in Christ who could teach us about long-suffering, who could teach us about mercy and kindness and grace. So, in the face of rebellion and human injustice, God chooses grace and mercy over exacting justice from his people by giving us Jesus. Now, the way this is oftentimes confused is that we misunderstand grace as a substance, like it's a thing that we can give to somebody. Now, this comes from medieval theology. Some would say a misunderstanding of Thomas Aquinas' theology of grace. But grace began to be understood as a thing that God gives. And there was a whole system built around this because if grace is a thing, then it can be turned into a commodity. And if it's a commodity, it can be used and withheld and used to manipulate other people. And that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church had begun to do in its doctrine and system of penance and purgatory, is that you could buy and take and trade some of God's grace. Now, as Protestant Christians, we don't buy into those things, yet we still oftentimes talk like this, right? We think of grace a lot as a thing that God can give us. Like he gives us a little bit of grace here and a little bit of grace over here, and some people have more grace than others. But that's not grace. When we talk about grace, when we pray for grace, when we ask God for grace, what we're asking for is him. You see, grace is God's disposition towards sinners who rebel. There's nothing in between you and God. There's not this thing called grace. It's God. So when the Bible talks about grace, it's a synonym for Christ. So when you say, God, be gracious to me, what you're asking for is for God to be true to his disposition towards you, even though you just rebelled against him. It's not to pour out this thing called grace so that somehow uh, you're, you're okay and things will be better. 
but it's actually asking for God himself. And we know this is true, right? When you say, uh, please be gracious to me, or please extend grace to me during this busy season, right? What you're saying is, I don't deserve it, and you're not asking for some token, right? Please give me grace. You don't expect someone to reach in their pocket and hand you a token called grace. What you expect them to do is to be gracious to you, right? To exercise kindness to you even when you don't deserve it. That's grace. And it's no different when God exercises grace towards us. It's God's loving, kind, merciful disposition when we reject him. So for God to be gracious to us is for God to love us, to give us his presence even in our rebellion. So grace is a gift. Grace is power to transform. Grace is God's disposition. And it's those things alone, the reformer said, that make up what God's grace is. <clears throat> so now, how would we live this out? How do we live this out, the fact that it's a gift, the fact that it transforms, the fact that we now understand grace not as a thing, but as God's disposition and power and presence in our very life? Well, the first way is I'm gonna have to do this in about three or four minutes, and these things deserve their own sermon series. And in fact, we may have a sermon series on these things. And that is, we have to talk about what we have often call means of grace. When you talk about, when you think of grace, okay, uh, grace is, we can think of it, it's God's personal confrontation with us. That's what it means. Like, so for God to have grace on us, it's for God to personally confront us. All right? And so, we have to then talk about the means by which God has said he will confront his people. And confront doesn't mean conflict. It means come into relationship with, in this case. So these means of grace. First, word and sacrament. We talked about this the first week. God meets us in his word. God chose to graciously self-publish who he was to us in a book. To give us who he is and that his spirit is so integrally connected to his word that when we read the Bible, when you hear the word preached, you're hearing from God himself. Not because I'm God, but because his word is inspired. And so the word is a way that God has ordained. He says, this is a primary means by which we will commune together, by which we, I will confront you with my presence and change you is through your word. And then you have sacrament, these two sacraments that happen in corporate worship of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Word and sacrament always belong together, okay? Sacrament is the visible word. So in a sense, if I tell you that little Eden Kate, for example, now is a covenant child because of, by virtue of being born into a covenant family, that would still be true. And by baptizing her, it makes that fact no more true. However, by word and sacrament going together, we have this gracious gift of God. You see, we're human beings and we have sensible signs given to us. We see things with our eyes. We smell things with our nose. We hear words spoken to us. We feel things with our hands. And the sacraments are God stooping down, not, con not condescending in the way we think of it, but in his mercy, condescending so we can understand and know. Okay, so Eden Kate's not just a child of the covenant. I saw it. I heard the water. I watched it happen. Same thing with communion. I smelled it. I taste it. I see it. So when you come up for communion and you taste the bread and wine and you smell it and you watch the pastor break the bread, you know that Jesus, the proclaimed gospel, is even more real than that because that taste will go from your mouth. That smell will be gone, but the promise 
of the Lord Jesus lasts forever. So you see, the word and sacrament are amazing gifts. It's like today, for those of you who are fathers, my daughters don't know that I know that they made me gifts, but they left them out, so I saw them. Now they can tell me Happy Father's Day, and they love me. And that gift, that, that, that sign that they give me, makes it no more real to me. But yet, when you put them together, isn't there something different? Word and sacrament belong together. Sensible signs and the spoken word belong together. And then prayer. Prayer is also a means of grace. It's a means of grace because it's God has chose, chosen prayer for us as an instrument for achieving his purposes through us and in us. Do you know you actually get to talk and commune with God? That's an amazing place where God confronts you, where God speaks to you, where you speak to God. The father loves to hear the prayers of his son. And now that Christians are in union with Jesus, adopted by the father, he loves to hear your prayers. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 14. He says, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the father on your behalf, for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Word and sacrament, prayer, and then lastly this morning for a means of grace, community. We often take church way too lightly, as though it were this optional thing that was an obvious sociological or anthropological response to a common interest group who happened to believe the same thing. Right, that's what happens. People believe the same thing and then they form groups, right? Facebook is just another place where people can form groups and talk about things they're interested in together. The church is not that. See, we, in our response to Jesus, did not opt into the church. We didn't think it was a good idea. It was God's idea. So the church is a gift where we can experience God's presence in one another and through one another. And that's why it's a means of grace. So because you didn't choose to opt in, you don't just get to choose to opt out. It's not your idea. That's why the church is called a creature of the word. Creature, it's amazing. A creature is born of something. So it was the word and grace of God that birthed Christians, which birthed the church. And so we cannot take this lightly. If you want God to lead you and guide you, you have to be in the church. It's not optional. It's a means of grace. I know it's quick. But when you talk about grace and God's presence confronting in your life, we have to talk about the things that he's explicitly given us and told us that are good for us and where he wants to meet with us. Next, a way to practice this is moment by moment resting and reliance upon God's gracious disposition towards you. The Puritans used to call the thoughts that we have that God's not interested in us. You know these thoughts. God's not interested in me. Man, I just thought that now I need have to, I'd have to distance myself for a little bit longer before God actually likes me again, before I can actually come to him in prayer. The Puritans called those thoughts hard thoughts against God. Do you have hard thoughts against God? Listen, when I was young, younger in my faith, um, I didn't understand how people could be depressed. How's that possible? How could people really doubt their salvation? How could really people really doubt what Jesus did for them? It just wasn't true to my experience. And so I was a little uh, suspicious 
of people, maybe, who struggled in ways that I didn't struggle. And then I lived a little longer, and I met some more people, and I realized that even some of my heroes in the faith struggled with deep bouts of hard thoughts with God. And not just circumstantial in life, which all of us experience, but just crushing existential angst over thoughts they have or over uh, thoughts they have against God. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the last few generations, he was one of these men. And he had a quote that helped me so deeply, and I want to share with you. This idea of grace, practicing that, is of this moment-by-moment resting in reliance upon God's gracious disposition towards you. He says this. I've changed it a little bit only for to modernize the language. If seven times a day we offend and repent, offend him and repent, does he forgive? Seven times, same day. Choose to rebel, 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 choose to rebel. Seven sounds pretty kind. But if seven times a day we offend him and repent, does he forgive? Spurgeon says, ah, that he does. God is more ready to forgive me than I am ready to sin. Think about that. You're too lazy in your rebellion, is what he's saying. I'm too lazy in my rebellion. I'm dispassionate in my rebellion. God is more ready to forgive me than I am ready to sin, though, alas, I am all too ready to transgress. Do you have the right thoughts of God, dear hearer? If so, then you know that he is a tender father, willing to wipe the tear of repentance away and press his offending child to his bosom and kiss him with the kisses of his forgiving love. That is grace. It's, not, it's, it's God. It's God's disposition towards you. He's not hard towards you. He's always leaning in. And we believe he's leaning out when in fact it's us stepping back. We run around, as J.I. Packer said, in the hand of the Father. Where are you, God? Where are you, God? And the whole time we're in his hand. God's disposition towards you is tender and kind. And so, moment by moment, we have to rest and rely upon God's gracious disposition. That's how we live grace alone. Alone. And lastly, we must embrace Jesus as the pinnacle of God's grace. See, grace is not an abstract thing we've talked about. Grace is a person. It's God. And then who else do we see most fully God's gracious disposition towards us but in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Titus chapter two, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people see, the supreme manifestation of God's grace in history is Jesus Christ. The incarnation is the embodiment of God's grace. It's the supreme revelation of God's grace. It's God's grace personified. Here's a quote from an author. If grace is the unmerited favor of God, then the coming of the Son of God in human flesh is the greatest act of God's grace and the fulfillment of God's gracious purpose. You see, Jesus did not cajole the Father into saving us. 
It's not like the father's hand is behind his back just wanting to get at us and Jesus is like, sorry, can't do it, I died for them. That's not what's happening. But the father sent the son, the son came and died for us in submission to the will of the father and now that work is applied to us by the Holy Spirit and continues to change us. That's why we are called new creations in Jesus. You're new and that's possible for you. When you trust in Jesus, God's grace makes you new. And so lastly, how could I not talk about what that means tomorrow morning, on Monday morning, when you go to work? If you read on, verse 10, so he tells us, verse 8, by grace you've been saved through faith, this is not your own doing, not as a result of work so that no one may boast, so you can rest and you can rely upon God's gracious disposition towards you in Jesus. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. This is poema, you may have heard this. We're God's poems. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works didn't recreate you, but now that you're recreated, you've been created for good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, tomorrow when you wake up, God is not simply interested in what you do this week in your callings. Your callings are integral to his plan in the world through you. When you go to work tomorrow, when you interact with someone, and when you do that next business deal, that's not incidental to the mission of God, it's been said. It is integral to the mission of God. So the way you can live in grace is that you don't have to be identified by your success at work, and you don't have to be crushed by the fact that you don't like your job. But in fact, when all of this is mercy and grace towards you, and you've been born into a new creation, you walk into everyday life fully accepted and on mission with him. And not only did he call you on mission, he prepared things beforehand for you to do. So if we're gonna practice grace alone, it can't stop with God's disposition towards us. That's a blessing. But now we are called then as the blessed ones to be a blessing wherever we would go. And so to believe in grace alone believes that God has called us as new creations on mission in every space that we go. You see, grace is not opposed to creation. It's not opposed to the body. It's not opposed to work. It's not opposed to leisure. Grace is only opposed to sin, which is why redemption goes everywhere sin has gone. So everywhere in your life sin is, and everywhere God sends you, God has sent you now as an agent of his grace. What a privilege. What a privilege. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now so grateful that you are always disposed to us in Jesus as kindness. I pray that we would not reject that. And for my friends here who have rejected your grace, I pray that you would woo them to repentance. And for other friends who feel crushed by their own angst, I ask that you would, Holy Spirit, help them look away from themselves, away from their own failures to the perfect life of Jesus, and that would transform us. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you are the object of our faith, that you are our hope, you never change, you never fail. Pray that would change our lives, that we would be the blessed ones who will be a blessing. We have nothing we have to gain because he's given us all of us.